Well, good morning. We'd do well probably to go ahead and begin. I know others will be walking in, but I'm going to give you a reward for, for being here on time today. We are going to propose uh, a solution to, to the mystery that was asked uh, several times at the beginning. We were talking about the history of the doctrines of grace, and then as they were in, in English, you know, then this acronym for TULIP, unclear where that really originated. And I, I remember a few years back reading an article that was more of a question than an answer about the origin of, of TULIP. And then just this week, on uh, one of the websites that I was on where they linked to different interesting articles, one of the interesting articles that they linked to was uh, titled, The Man Who Coined the TULIP Acrostic. So I was like, well, I'm going to have to read this article. So I'll summarize real quick. Just the, It's kind of it's interesting because I have heard the name... Uh, of a, a theologian that's well-known, who was well-published as well. And, and in the 30s, there, there's a book that Lorraine Botner had written on the doctrines of grace, where he refers to TULIP. And that's really kind of been, in people's mind, the, the earliest published uh, usage of, of TULIP. But in this article, I'll just read a portion of it. William Vale wrote an article in 1913 in the Outlook, which describes a lecture that he heard back in 1905. Okay, so in 1913, there's a guy writing an article about a lecture from 1905. And the lecture in 1905 was, was delivered in New Jersey at the Presbyterian Union of Newark, New Jersey. And the, the lecture was on the doctrines of grace by an individual named Cleland Boyd McAfee. Okay, so Cleland McAfee. Remember that name. So in this lecture, 1905, a lecture that somebody is writing an article in 1913, apparently he took good notes. This is taking the five letters, Dr. McAfee used them as follows. He says, one, T stands for total depravity. Two, U stands for universal sovereignty. L, limited atonement. I, irresistible grace. P, perseverance of the saints. So in 1905, you have TULIP. And now what those letters represent, you'll notice that one of those five is different. And I mean, who are we to pick on them? We've already like changed every single letter we've talked about so far. So, so when Cleland McAfee tried to summarize the canons of Dort, he did so with this uh, acronym for TULIP, and, and the five were total depravity, universal sovereignty, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints. Again, that's 1905. And then a few decades later, uh, when Lorraine Baltner would, would write, he would, he would use um, unconditional election for uh, the second letter U rather than universal sovereignty. But, but they're, both, they're both seeking to summarize the canons of Dort. So perhaps, right, 1905, we know it's as early, some clever English speaker in, in 1905, and perhaps he, he was, uh, he'd heard it as well before, but, but now, to my knowledge, which has been, you know, like seven minutes of research on the internet, it's a, not, not a scholarly endeavor, right, but uh, we know it's at least from 1905, so that's pretty neat. So if you're in here for the first time this morning, you might even be wondering what I'm talking about. We, this summer, we're, we're, summer, we're, we're working through the doctrines of grace. We're thinking of um, God saves sinners. 
And, and as we look in the scriptures, we see how it is that God who is sovereign over all um, uh, is sovereign over salvation. And he loves to save sinners. And he, he does so to his own glory. And so we uh, delight in exploring what the scriptures have to say about the doctrine of salvation. And so that's what we're doing as we walk through the doctrines of grace. And so I'll begin in prayer, and then we will look at irresistible grace uh, today, the I in, in tulip. So we, I think, already kind of explained why, the, why we're not necessarily taking the the exact order of the letters in Tulip. Uh, we talked about radical depravity, total depravity first, and then now we're, now we're going to explore irresistible grace as our second of the, of the five letters. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for this morning, thankful to be able to gather as a church family to worship you, and then to even note that as we think through salvation, we delight in the fact that you save sinners. And the only reason that we're able to gather together and to rightly approach you in worship is, is because of Christ, that we can be in a right relationship with you um, by placing our faith in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. And you credit us with the righteousness of Christ, and we're able to approach you um, in a worthy manner, in a right manner, and so we can give praise and glory to you as we gather as the people of God today because of salvation, what has been accomplished through redemption. We love you, we thank you, and we praise you for this time. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Did something happen to my microphone while we were praying? Or No, it's still fine. Okay, good deal. All right, so hopefully you have a handout in front of you. Um, that just is going to be in a, in a concise way, uh, an outline of what we're going to look at this morning as we talk about irresistible grace. And now we've, we've noted that as, as, we're, as we're talking about the doctrines of grace, this can be a very, very controversial subject. Uh, oftentimes there's a lot of emotion w- with this to, to think through um, how God saves, God's sovereign overall, and it's God who sovereignly chooses those whom he will save. And, and so as we walk through these, we just want to remind ourselves that we want to think biblically. We're all tempted to think, well, you know, it does look like the scriptures say this and that and that, but it can't mean that, right? You know what I mean? I think sometimes we're tempted to think that way. And so we, we want to recognize that we're going to submit to the scriptures, seek to study what the scriptures have to say. And so when we begin to explore irresistible grace, a lot of times we'll think, well, that cannot be true. Because when you hear the word irresistible, you're tempted to think, I can think in my own life and in the lives of all sorts of people where they have resisted God's grace. So in what sense do we mean God saves us with irresistible grace? Because you think, man, the history of the world is one of resisting God's grace. And so it's really going to be important that, that we think through what we mean and what we don't mean by irresistible grace. And so you'll notice on the handout, um, I, I'm going to use the word effectual calling, because I believe that word effectual is going to be helpful for us to not be confused by what we don't mean by irresistible, uh, because there, there's certainly this external call that goes out to the world, a call to um, respond to the gospel. The gospel is proclaimed to the world, 
And and that gospel call goes out. Many resist that gospel call. But then we also recognize in the scripture that that when uh, those whom God chooses to save, when he opens their eyes to the gospel, when he gives them new hearts, as we talked about last week, regeneration, uh, when when no one can resist God's will. Uh, And so that's what we're going to talk about. That's that internal call, this effectual call, this call that is effective. It doesn't just make salvation possible, it actually saves. It does something. And so that's what we're talking about when we talk about effectual calling. So again, this can kind of be emotional. And I was even listening to a lecture where R.C. Sproul was interacting with a conversation he remembers from a professor he had, a Presbyterian professor that he had, where the question was asked to this professor, do you adhere to the doctrines of grace? To which the professor answered, absolutely not. And, and he said the, the reason why was he said, I cannot submit to uh, some teaching that, that communicates that, that God saves by grabbing somebody, they're kicking, and they're screaming, not wanting to be saved, and, they, and, and God just drags and, um, and uh, takes someone who's kicking and screaming into the kingdom of heaven. He's like, I can't believe in a God like that. And I also, or a salvation like that. So I also can't believe in a scenario where there, there's somebody who desires to be saved, wants to be saved, and is pleading with God to save them. And God says, sorry, um, I know you want to be in a right relationship. I'm, I'm paraphrasing how this guy characterized it. But he's saying when someone desires to be saved and they plead with God to save them, but God, um, God rejects their plea. What, what this guy is, is communicating is that God, God saves some who hate the thought of being saved and, and God turns away those who, who desire so much to be saved, want to respond rightly to the gospel, but, but God refuses their, their desire. That's what this guy was implying is communicated by the doctrines of grace. And so what I think we're going to see as we study through these, even as we, we get, began with total depravity, we saw there is no one who is in that second category that left to themselves is just thinking, man, I hate that I'm such a sinner that has offended God and I desire so much that God would forgive me of my sin and if God would only forgive me of my sin, I'd serve him all my days and God says, sorry, you're not one of mine. Like That's just not a scenario. You don't have anyone who is seeking after God. So that, that scenario is not a reality, the part B of this professor's accusation. And what we'll see today with irresistible grace is that that first part of that scenario that this professor suggested is also not a reality because this irresistible grace, when God saves someone, he gives them a new heart as we were talking about last week. And um, we love God because he first loved us. And so when he saves us, you do see language even of, to show how effective God's salvation is. The drawing that we'll see in the scriptures, even in John 6, that, that verbiage that is used does communicate, you know, this irresistible, like, man, you got no choice in the matter. Like, it, you're, you're being dragged. It's not your doing. It's God doing it. But it's not a dragging in the sense of, I hate this, I hate this, I hate you, and I hate this is happening. No. He gives us new hearts, a love for him, a desire to, to, to um, be one of his children. And so, so that guy, who's a Presbyterian professor, doesn't get the doctrines of grace. And so I hope we do as, as we study this, this carefully. Uh, we've spent a lot of time already talking about the condition of man, and then really just getting to this point now. Wow, if, if we are so 
desperately wicked, dead in our sin, hardened to the gospel, how is it that God overcomes that to save us? And so that's what we'll see this morning and throughout our study. So, so this morning, effectual calling. And even to that question that I was just asking a second ago, let me, let me read a quote from so, I mean, John Murray. He wrote a book, Redemption Accomplished and Applied. John Murray, Redemption Accomplished and Applied. And here's, here's his contribution to that question. How can a person who is dead in trespasses and sins, whose mind is enmity against God, and who cannot do that which is well-pleasing to God, answer a call to the fellowship of Christ? You, you understand his question here. If you're thinking, it, if we have just explored radical depravity, you find yourself thinking, how can someone like that um, answer a call to the fellowship of Christ, is how John Murray phrases that question. And how he goes about in his book, Redemption Accomplished and Applied, to answer that question is then to walk through this reality that the sinner cannot answer that call of God. But it's God, it's God who must apply this calling. And so God, in applying this calling, does so in an effectual way. It doesn't just make it possible and leave it up to you. It's not just an option. It is God who effectually saves. He regenerates the sinner so that the sinner is born again uh, when they respond, and they respond rightly to the gospel with faith and repentance. So, so I appreciate that question that he asks, and more importantly, the answer that he provides And thinking through, man, we really are desperately wicked, dead in our sin, and God really does save sinners, sinners that are in that very condition. Okay, so we'll, we'll get into these texts. I feel like I do have just maybe too many like introductory just quotes, but, but one more just to kind of prepare, prepare our our minds for what we're about to explore. Here, here are, here's an illustration from Kevin DeYoung and thinking through this topic of irresistible grace. He says, imagine for yourself two different scenes. Okay, here's two different scenarios. They both are referring to a gift that is being given. Two different scenarios with two different gifts. Here's scenario number one. Uh, and it's, it's known in here probably. You're 16 years old. Okay, so what we're talking about Back in our youth, you're 16 and your father comes home from work. And because it's your birthday, he announces a surprise to you. He takes you to the local car dealership and he points to a brand new convertible. And he tells you that the car is yours if you want it. Um, He's paid for it. He's signed all the papers. And all you have to do is grab the keys, hop in the car, and drive your shiny new vehicle off the lot. And that's quite a gift, isn't it? Like when you think of that scenario, what, what, a, what a wonderful gift. Wow, it's yours if you want it. It's a pricey convertible, but it's free if you decide you want it. Okay, that, that's an attractive thought about um, saving faith at, at first glance. Now think of this second scenario. Here's, here it is. You are lying, uh, like physically lying down, lying unconscious. You're in a hospital. You're in this hospital bed. You don't know where you are. You don't know who you are. You don't know what is going on. You should be dead. 
In fact, the doctor has pronounced you dead just minutes ago, but now your heart is beating. And the hospital staff had pumped blood into your veins when you'd bled out from a massive laceration. That's quite a gift as well. Someone else's blood for free put into you when you had no ability to ask for it, no ability to resist it, no ability to receive it. So what's powerful to me in thinking through these is how actually when, when they, both, they both point to, you know, a gift being given, a, a gift that is freely given, a gift that is undeserved. But that second scenario actually shows for us what we are talking about with effectual grace. That um, it, it's not that, that, that God makes this attractive gift available and, and he's left it to us to decide whether or not, I don't know if I like how I just said that. It, it's not up to, it's not that we are the ones who are the ones who save ourselves by recognizing the value of the gift and, and God, God made it available, but left it up to our free will to decide whether or not we are going to accept God's offer. God actually enters in and saves us because we are dead. We are not going to recognize the value of it because in our, in our condition, we are dead in our sin. And so God has to open our eyes. God has to breathe new life into us to, to respond rightly. To, he saves us. And, and so effectual calling matches up. Well, now all illustrations, analogies, you know, are going to fall short in some way. So you're probably going to find some issues with that analogy. But I just feel like it, it paints a helpful picture of seeing what we're talking about with this effectual nature of, of, of how God places us into his kingdom. The effectual nature of God's call to saving faith. The effectual nature of how God saves all those whom he has chosen. We're that dead patient on that hospital bed that needs God to act. We're not just out and about willing to make the right decision or make the wrong decision, and it's up to us. Now, we are Man is responsible. There is this compatibilism, this reality. God is sovereign over salvation, and man is held accountable and responsible for, um, for, their, for, ev- for all of their choices. But it is God who is sovereign over salvation. If God doesn't save, no one will be saved. And we're going to see the how and the why uh, through all this, and I, and I hope it's a delight to us to, to explore these truths. Okay, so we're going to talk about effectual call, then I'm going to define it, and then we're going to look at some, some passages that, that I think will, will help us to see that this definition represents well what we're going to see in these passages. What are we talking about when we talk about effectual call, irresistible grace? Uh, our definition, which is from a, a friend of so many in this room, Bruce Ware, uh, writing on this, he says, the Holy Spirit is able, when he so chooses, to overcome all human resistance and so cause his gracious work to be utterly effective and ultimately irresistible. So there's just a few key statements I want you to see in that first sentence. Uh, It's the Holy Spirit, he's able to save. And when he so chooses, he can overcome. If you think of everything that was talked about two weeks ago, he can overcome 
all of that, that human resistance, the, the condition of man being dead in our sin, he can overcome all human resistance and so cause his gracious work to be utterly effective, ultimately irresistible. Those are, those are helpful words, okay? Continuing, this doctrine of salvation or, or soteriology, this doctrine of salvation um, teaches that irresistible grace refers to the Spirit's work to overcome all sin-induced resistance, all rebellion. He opens blind eyes, enlivens hardened hearts so that sinners understand and embrace the gospel of salvation through faith in Christ. So I, I believe that, that definition will be helpful for all of us to, to continue to have in our minds as we think of this study today, but also as we go home from here to think more carefully about the subject. Um, the, the irresistible grace refers to the Holy Spirit's work in overcoming our resistance. Uh, when he so chooses, he saves those whom he's chosen to save. He does it in an effective and irresistible way, uh, causes us to embrace the gospel through faith in Christ. So four truths then are going to be affirmed in, in Scripture uh, in regards to this, this subject. As we walk through these passages, we're going to see that the man is unable to choose God left to their own. That, that was already explored. Man's inability is one, one truth from Scripture. The second reality about the doctrine of salvation, man is unable, but the second reality is that God offers in a genuine way. There, this is not in your notes. I know everybody's kind of looking at page two, and page two's blank. Um, there's a, this is just some introductory comments of mine. Man's inability, the Scripture teaches. Secondly, the Scripture also shows us that God makes this offer of salvation, uh, a genuine offer of salvation is, is given um, to all. This offer goes out to all. There's an, a genuine offer of salvation to all. Another reality that the Scriptures show us is that man is then responsible to respond rightly to that genuine offer of salvation. Man's inability is taught in Scripture. God's genuine offer of salvation to all is taught in Scripture. Man's responsibility to respond rightly to that genuine offer is taught in Scripture. But finally, what we're going to see this morning, or what we're going to be thinking about this morning, is God's effectual grace, that, that uh, um, irresistible and effective work of salvation that God does, that, that is an effectual grace is only for the elect. So, not in your notes, but turn to John chapter 6 really quick. Now, I said something a few weeks ago that a month or so from now, after we walk through these, these doctrines of grace, we're going to zoom in on one particular gospel. We're going to think very carefully about what the gospel of John has to say about these doctrines of grace. So, I have tried to not spend too much time in John now because we will be there for, for two weeks, I believe, um, soon. But, but I have to go to John 6, and we're going to talk about irresistible grace. So you have in front of you the chapter 6, John 6, look at verse 36. John 6, 36. I'll probably start, I will start in 35. Jesus said to them, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So I want to read again verse 37. 
All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And then Jesus says it again in another way, just a few verses later. Go down to verse 44. So he just said that all that the Father gives him will come to him, and whoever comes to him, I will never cast out. Then in verse 44, Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Okay, John 6 is showing us that, that all that the Father gives, you know, these, these are all who will be saved, all that the Father gives will come, is what Jesus is saying. You, you cannot resist God's purposes. All that the Father gives will come. And whoever comes, I will never cast out. Verse 44 says it um, as well, when no one can come unless the Father who sent me draws him. So we're seeing that inability of we can't save ourselves. No one will come unless God draws. Earlier, verse 37 is saying everyone who God draws will come. So everyone who God draws will come. Verse 44, no one can come unless God draws. Both of those are very important for us to recognize when we're talking about irresistible grace. God's drawing doesn't just make belief possible. That would be the car scenario that I read at the beginning of like this, this dad's like, hey, here's an offer you can't refuse. And you're thinking, man, that is pretty tough to resist. But you could make a bad choice and be like, you know what? Gas prices are kind of expensive right now. I don't think I want a convertible. Uh, you know, you could resist your dad's offer. You know, there is a resistibility to that, that first scenario that I read from Kevin DeYoung. What John 6 is saying is those whom God saves, he does so in an irresistible way. You cannot, um, he doesn't, he doesn't uh, leave you the, the deciding vote. Like God has chosen you. And so no one can come unless the Father draws him, and everyone who the Father draws will come to him. In fact, that word draw is a very strong word. Even in the Greek, it's used in other places. Like in James, it talks about like dragging people into court. Uh, that's, the, that's the same, the rich people dragging the poor, poor into court. That's the same word being used to talk about how God draws people unto himself. And so, so we're seeing God is very much um, sovereign over salvation. And, he, and when he saves, um, he, he does so. No one can resist his will. Uh, it's irresistible grace. So uh, it's irresistible, not because he's dragging you against your will, thinking you hate it. I wish this wasn't happening. But it's irresistible because God changes your hearts. He gives you new hearts. Um, so that you're going to come freely. I can't believe that God has saved me. He's, he makes us willing uh, by grace. He, he saves us because he regenerates our hearts. Um, and so at this point, you probably still find yourself thinking, man, we can say these things at the beginning, but this is really hard to grasp because 
the history of the world is one of, of resisting God's grace. So what are we saying and what are we not saying when we're talking about God's irresistible grace? And, and what is important, and this is in your handout, um, what is important in, in really kind of grasping God's irresistible grace is to recognize that in the scripture, there is this gospel call that goes out to all. This is, this, is, this is evangelism. We're even, you know, it's a means of grace. God even uses us to evangelize the lost. We go out and we proclaim the gospel to everyone. This gospel call does go out and it is resistible, right? There, there are, we're going to look at a few passages real quick, just seeing the, the sinners resisting this gospel call. So there is this universal call, this external call that goes out and um, the scripture is very clear about it, um, but it can be resisted, and we're going to see that. But then there, when we're talking about this call, we're going to read about this effectual call uh, in the scriptures, particularly in Romans 8. It certainly would be what we're reading about in, in John 6. But this effectual call, when God calls out someone unto salvation, when, as we read in that definition, when the Holy Spirit so chooses, he overcomes our human resistance, causes his gracious work to be effective, um, irresistible. That effectual call, when God saves those whom he has called, that calling is irresistible. No one can resist his will. So we want to walk through then both of these calls. This, this gospel call that goes out to everyone, and then this external call, this, um, this internal call that, that, um, that it pictures God calling out those whom he will save, this irresistible grace that is applied to those who he saves. Okay, so let's, let's seek to think biblically. Let's talk first about the gospel call uh, you have in front of you a few passages in Romans. Um, let's, let's turn there. And to speak of you know, the gospel call, and you know, we do well just to recognize, what are we talking about? You know, we're talking about the offering of salvation, right? We, we proclaim to all people uh, the salvation is in Christ alone. Um, you know, so it's an invitation to accept, uh, accept the gospel, to repent uh, to place your faith in Christ, to receive forgiveness. I mean, that's what we're talking about with this gospel call that is to go out to all. Um, it's an invitation to everyone. Um, and our desire in proclaiming it to everyone, we're not just thinking, oh, I have to do this. God calls me to do it. We're, we proclaim the gospel to others because we have a sincere desire to see many come to Christ. And so this gospel call that goes out to all is done in a genuine way. Um, and so an obedient way to proclaim the lost, uh, to proclaim the gospel to all the lost. But, uh, and it's, it's done with a desire to see people come to faith. But, uh, but it is done in, in, with an awareness that it is going to be resisted often. And, and so let's just look at a couple examples of that. You have what Romans 1 uh, We'll start there. Sorry for not already being where I needed to be. Romans 1, 19 through 21. We're just going to even see that, that in general revelation, there's already accountability to, to, res, to respond rightly to, to 
our creator. Um, For what can be known, verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. So even just when you begin in Romans 1, you're just even seeing it. General revelation that the history of the world has been one of, of, of um, resistance to, to what God has revealed about himself to all creation. They, they resist that. Um, chapter 2, much of much of the same realities, Romans 2, 14 and 15. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men, by Christ Jesus. So both in Romans 1 and Romans 2, you're seeing both in creation and conscience, uh, man, um, God, has, God has revealed uh, much about himself and man has resisted what, what God has um, made plain. And, and so um, there's this truth that's been communicated and resistance has been the response by so much of mankind. Well, then when you think in a specific way of of special revelation, where the gospel then goes out and uh, and is proclaimed, you think of, you think of the responsibility of the great commission and you have it in front of you, Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Go therefore and make disciples of the elect. No, it's, you, you see what you see what it says? Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. So what, I'm, what I did that just there is, is to point out that, that our responsibility to go out and evangelize is to evangelize all nations. We go out and proclaim to all. We, don't, we aren't looking for some code word or some sign to know who we're supposed to say it to and who we're not supposed to say it to. We go and we proclaim the gospel to all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Back to Romans chapter 10. Romans 10, 8. What does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because... If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. All of these verses are reminding us of the gospel uh, is to be proclaimed to all. Uh, and, and how beautiful are the feet of those who go out and evangelize. 
And, um, and you're seeing that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how is anybody going to do that unless they hear it? You know, how's anybody going to hear it unless somebody proclaims it? How's somebody going to proclaim it unless they're sent? How beautiful it is to see God's wisdom in gospel proclamation uh, that he sends us out to proclaim the gospel to the lost. Because this is important because there is, and I've actually never met anyone in this category. I have read even recent works that, that imply this in a way. There are some who would think that if, if um, God uh, chooses uh, and God saves the elect, so gos- the gospel goes to the elect. Um, and we don't just, we don't proclaim the gospel to everyone because it's not for everyone. And so that, that's kind of like the implication here that would be what, what is often referred to as like hyper-Calvinism. Uh, that's not what the doctrines of grace teach because we, we know that we, God is sovereign, but he, he uses, as Romans 10 is just saying, uh, the means of grace is, is gospel declaration to the world. Uh, that's how God saves um, sinners. And so we are to go out and we are to proclaim the gospel to the world. This gospel call goes out and, and you have in front of you one blank that you need to fill in um, because the gospel goes out to the world, but this gospel call can be resisted. And so Acts chapter 7 really is like often a passage that might be quick on, on the minds of those who would hear someone proclaim God's grace is irresistible. God saves by irresistible grace. Uh, someone might think, well, Acts 7.51 seems to say the exact opposite about the Spirit's work. Because Acts 7.51 says, you stiff-necked people. Stubborn, right? Stubborn in hearts. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. So what Acts 7 is speaking to is this rejection of of the gospel call. When, When the gospel goes out, and it goes out powerfully. I mean, it is truth being communicated. But there are countless individuals who resist this, who reject this, who are, who are hardened of heart, stiff-necked people who always resist the Holy Spirit. And so it's just important for us to understand this reality because it would be confusing if you didn't see that there are two different calls uh, that, that are talked about in the scriptures. This one call is this gospel call that goes out to everyone. And as Acts 7 reminds us and as history communicates and even your own testimony, probably often, many of you can, can think back to much resistance in your own mind when you first heard the truth of the gospel. The gospel call can be resisted. So now let's then move in. That's that external call, this gospel call that goes out to all. It is necessary uh, for salvation, this gospel call to go out. Um, It's necessary. But the effectual call shows us that it's not just that God makes salvation possible through the gospel call. He actually saves 
Uh, it's effective. This effectual call is effective and irresistible. So we'll begin with Romans 8, and you actually have it in front of you because I wanted just to kind of put in bold font just several, several points to Romans 8 in a very clear and helpful way is going to show us that this call that we're talking about can't just be some invitation that can be accepted or can be rejected. That's not what's going on in Romans 8 because you're seeing those who are called, um, that it's, they are they're described in this passage with, with other activity as well. So, so Romans 8, 28 through 30. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So in Romans 8, who are the predestined? The predestined are the same ones as the called. Those who are called are the same ones as those who are justified. Um, in fact, I, I jumped ahead of even in, think of verse 28. That these, those who are called are those who love God. It's that same category of people. It's those who love God. These are the ones who were foreknown, who were predestined, who were called, who were justified, who will be glorified. So Paul has the same group of people in mind throughout. Why this matters with this subject is if, if the call can be resisted, um, it just doesn't match up with what Paul is saying in Romans 8. Because all of the called out ones will be justified. All uh, of those who are called will love God. It's an effectual calling, right? It, it produces something. It causes something. It does something. If the called ones here are referring to everybody who has been invited to receive the gospel, the other categories don't match up. It, this is talking about somebody who has been effectually called, someone who is saved. They love God and they are justified and they will be glorified. Who is that person? It's the called uh, all those who are called. So what I'm trying to say, or what I'm showing from Scripture is, man, the, the Bible has all sorts of passages that show us of this, this invitation of this gospel call that goes out to all. But then there's also language in the Scripture that speaks of believers as, as those who are called. They have, they've been called by God, and they've been called in an effectual way. And so those who are called are justified. Those who are justified will be glorified because all those who are called are foreknown, foreknown and predestined. They, they're, they're saved. 1 Corinthians 1 reminds us of this as well. 1 Corinthians 1, 22 through 24. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. There's that gospel call, right? Of, you know, we preach Christ crucified. And how's that received? Uh, we preach Christ crucified. It's a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But those who are called, 
Listen, this, isn't this interesting? Because you actually see both groups here. You're seeing the gospel call. The gospel call goes out to all and it's received differently. For some, it's foolishness. For others, it's the wisdom of God. It says the wisdom of God, the power of God, Christ, the power of God. Well, who responds to this with, this is the power of God. This is the wisdom of God. Who responds rightly? All those who are called. You see where Paul says that? Let me read it again. Just uh, bold font even kind of emphasizes it. Before Jews, they demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. Preaching Christ crucified is a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. I think it's very clear in, in that passage that you see this effectual reality of, of the calling for, for those who, who respond rightly to the gospel. It's, it's, it's the power of God. It's the wisdom of God. And that's why they respond. And I really believe, and John Piper has said this as well, there's some things about the doctrine of grace that at first glance you're thinking, this is hard to grasp. I can't believe this. Is this really what the Bible teaches? Some elements of that, man, we all grapple with. But I also think when you ask anybody who's a believer their testimony, it's, it's never one of like, man, I'm so glad that I made such a good decision because I'm so wise. You know, like all of us get, man, God saved me. You know, and we, we think more carefully about, about is, is it God who, who does all of that work um, in us or, or do we play a part, you know, some like teamwork, synergistic effort. Some of us wrestle with that, but I think all of us get, man, it's God who saves. It's not me who made a great choice. You know, we recognize by the grace of God's, you know, I, I would, I'd be dead in my sin as well. God saved me. So I think we, we get that this, at the heart of this, it's God who saves. It's not us who, um, who, who, who does this. God saves sinners. And so God's grace then is effectually applied to, to all believers. It, it overcomes our resistance. That's what we're referring to when we say irresistible grace. And so perhaps effectual calling helps us um, grasp that even, even more clearly to see that, man, when, when well, we'll back to some Dr. Ware's comments, the Holy Spirit is able and when he so chooses, he overcomes all human resistance and causes his gracious work to be utterly effective and ultimately irresistible. And so that's why I think it, it doesn't discourage evangelism to, to read this. You're seeing there is this gospel call that we're responsible to proclaim. And, and, and God does the work of salvation, that effectual call in the hearts of all whom he saves. So let, let's be faithful to proclaim the gospel. Let's be faithful to delight in, in what God has done to give him the glory for our salvation and, and trust him to do that in, in those that we proclaim the gospel to. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for this irresistible grace. God, we were dead in our sin and you sent your son to, to die for our sin, to pay for our sin, so that our sin could be dealt with. And we thank you that the Holy Spirit opened our eyes, uh, gave us new hearts. Uh, we recognize that faith is a gift. We recognize that uh, no one can come to you unless you draw them. And so we just thank you and praise you that you drew us unto salvation. 
And I pray that you'd be glorified and saving sinners. Would you continue to do that work in, in the life of our church? We're so thankful for so many kids that are in our church. God, I pray that we would be faithful to evangelize our children as parents, that we would uh, parent faithfully, but we also recognize that it's you who alone can change a sinner's heart. So God, I pray that you would save our children, um, that you would draw them to yourself, our family members, our, our co-workers, our neighbors, all that we have the opportunity to share the gospel with. God, we pray that you would save them to your glory. We love you and thank you and praise you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.